Hi folks, and welcome to the Empowering Dietitians podcast, where each week I explore a different topic that will help you feel more confident and connected to your work as a dietitian. Today, I am joined by Dr. Laura Zabaris, a UK-based psychologist and food freedom coach. Together, we chat about the concept of core beliefs, what they are, how they relate to our work with clients, and what I find most fascinating, how they relate to our own confidence. It's another episode full of insights and takeaways. Enjoy. Great. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I am very excited to have you on. I talk a lot about mindset and talk a lot about some of these like mental health topics. So having Mm -hmm. someone with a background in psychology has been on my list for a while. I'm so excited to bring your expertise to the table. Um, So why don't you tell everyone listening a little bit about who you are and where you come from? Sure. So, well, you can probably tell from my accent that I am speaking from the UK. I'm in London. Um, I'm a psychologist by training. I've worked in the field for 16 years now. And more recently in life, I retrained as a health coach. So for a while, I was working side by side psychology um, part time as a health coach. Um, part-time but transitioned even more recently with intuitive eating so I now term myself a food freedom coach as a sort of more of a catch-all to encompass everything that I do. Awesome and what made you make that switch from psychology to health coach to intuitive eating? Yes that's a really good question so I guess it's my background story because I um spent a lot of my early years dieting so I actually started dieting when I was about 16 I spent many years doing fad diets and that led to disordered eating an eating disorder in the form of bulimia and it was actually through speaking to an eating disorder counsellor and also um, dietitian slash nutrition counsellor here in the UK that got me back on track, helped me face fear foods, helped me get to a period of relative food freedom. And I was at that stage, a psychologist and doing a PhD working in the field. And much later, when I decided to have children, I found that that was very triggering in terms of the eating disorder history that I had in the past. And I really struggled, not so much while I was pregnancy, but pregnant it was after I was pregnant that I struggled with what my body was like and all that kind of messaging that women get about getting their bodies back and nine months up nine months down a huge pressure yeah no it the the pressures that we face through any of our like milestone moments Mm -hmm. in life and yes I know because you talked recently about wedding that wedding pressure I definitely had the wedding pressure Um, and then the post-pregnancy pressure and because I had dieted in the past and I'd recovered from my eating disorders I was like I'm not going to diet but that's when I got very sucked into wellness culture and at the time I didn't really realize that it was really diet culture in the disguise but I was doing everything that essentially I had been doing in, in the form of restricting but I was doing it for health this time quote unquote 
health. Yeah, no, and, that's where a lot of dietitians get yeah. caught too. I, that's, mm-hmm. that's where my disordered eating came from. It was hundred yes. percent through like, well, I'm yeah. just doing it to be healthy. I'm a nutrition Absolutely. student. I'm a new dietitian. I care about like my wellness and, and uh-huh. all of that. And it's not that we can't care about that, but there's a very fine line and yes. we have certain personality traits or a background with an eating disorder or disordered yeah. eating. It's very easy to slide into yeah. those unhealthy behaviors. Yeah. And that's exactly what I felt happening, but I wasn't aware of it at the time. It's only really in hindsight that I realized as I was orthorexic, I was so obsessed about being healthy. By that stage, I had given up gluten and dairy for the purposes of my health. I would only eat organic. I was obsessed about having a very perfect um, plate. You know, I had to eat perfectly all the time. And then that was when I thought, oh, it'd be really fun to train as a health coach because I'd love to be able to pass on all my knowledge to clients. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is the irony. I was training as a health coach whilst very much in the throes of orthorexia. Mm -hmm. And I think thankfully for me is that I didn't actually practice as a health coach for very long whilst I was orthorexic. I was actually introduced to health at every size and intuitive eating during my health coaching, but only as one of many approaches. Sure. So when I was actually practicing, it was very weight centric. And the thing that got me kind of questioning my approach was the fact that I was seeing a lot of disordered eating behaviors in myself and my clients. So Mm -hmm. as an example, rather than eating a brownie, we would cook quote unquote healthy brownies with sweet potatoes instead of actual chocolate. And I would find myself and also my clients wanting to eat a whole tray of brownies rather than just eating one chocolate brownie. And I think that's what kind of got me thinking. I was like, gosh, this is so weird. And people I'd work with people for a bit and they'd say they feel great. And then as soon as they stopped following the sort of healthy eating approach, Mm -hmm. they would, um, it was this, this bounce back. They'd be essentially restricting, but unfortunately I didn't see it as restricting at the time they were essentially restricting then there was this huge bounce back they were saying they were you know they were just going a bit crazy for everything sugar whatever else we had quit before so then then I was really questioning my approach and thinking this cannot be right and this doesn't match that period that little period of food freedom I had and that's when I just went back to the intuitive eating, the, the haze approach. And I read everything I could, went back to the literature, started reading the research around that. And I was like, Oof, where I have been focusing is completely wrong and I need to yeah. totally refocus. And that's when I um, sort of stopped, you know, retrained in intuitive eating and repitched myself as a food freedom coach as opposed to a sort of broad health coach. coach. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of dietitians listening who are in the intuitive eating space can really relate to that Mm. because very few of us started out in that space. Mm -hmm. Most of us start out in that weight centric space. And what makes the transition is that we start to see that it doesn't work. I have a few clients right now who are working in bariatrics and they're working with me on transitioning into intuitive eating specifically Mm -hmm. because they're like, I've been doing this for 10 or 15 years and it's not working. And I can see that it's not working. And I can see that it doesn't bring out the healthiest person in me either. And I want to pivot. So I think that that's really powerful and really important to recognize that a lot of times we don't recognize how powerful it is 
Mm-hmm. until we start to see the traditional approach kind of backfiring. Yes, bit. exactly. Yeah. So you made that transition. Now you're working with individuals on food freedom using mm-hmm. health at every size, intuitive eating yeah. approaches. Um, and I know that what we were going to talk about today was specifically core beliefs. Yeah. So I want to know first, before we figure out how core beliefs relate to the work that you do, I want to know what core beliefs are in general. What are we talking about? Yeah. So core beliefs are basically general principles and assumptions that guide people through life. So they can either be positive or they can be self-limiting. And what they do is they shape our sense of ourselves, our worth, and they impact the decisions they make. And so they become quite important to our emotional health. And I think so important when we're trying to heal our relationship with food. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so these are the beliefs that I would talk to dietitians about, for example, if they have a limiting belief around themselves or um, they have a rule or a judgment or kind of these like narratives that we tell ourselves about whatever in life, our relationship with someone or something, um, or our relationship with ourself. Yeah, exactly. So they can be a core belief you might have is, for example, a positive one might be, I can, I can do anything I put my mind to, Mm -hmm. but a limiting one could be something around, I'm not good enough, or I'm not worthy. This isn't going to work, that kind of thing. Absolutely. So how do these core beliefs relate to diet culture and your work with clients? Yeah. So I really focus on core beliefs that people have around their weight or food in general. And core beliefs generally start quite young. So what I guess the first step is understanding kind of how they come to be. So because they are created around things that people say to us so it could be your parents it could be teachers it could be brothers and sisters and it's at a very impressionable age so something that someone says to you when you're six you take that on as reality and truth and so sometimes it can be for the positive so if you grew up believing that you're very worthy as you are you're probably not going to be impacted by the toxic diet culture and the things that diet culture says that you're not good enough and you need to change according to someone else's standards so you might navigate through that very easily whereas someone who has uh, dieted in the past tried to change what they look like their size their shape followed healthy eating plans it's possibly because the core belief that they have is around there's something going on with their core beliefs so in my practice I would say the two core beliefs that come up pretty much with (laughs) everyone that I work with time and again so the very first one is this idea that thin is better really classic one and I get my clients to to think about the messages that they received as a child either around their body or their weight and so it might be that someone commented on their weight someone commented on the size of their tummy maybe they were weighed at school Mm-hmm. And it can also be things that aren't said out loud. And this is where it becomes harder maybe to unpick because it might just be that you saw everyone around you dieting when you were growing up or you felt pressure to look a certain way because of what your, you heard your mum say to herself, not even yep. what she said to you. It was just mm-hmm. you saw your mum dieting. She used to say she's never going to wear a bikini to the beach. Therefore, 
you feel well thin must be better so I always encourage my clients to say to think to ask themselves you know what did that take what did you take that to mean even if it's totally rational to you now so did it make you think you need to lose weight go on a diet get thinner so that's when they start to, I help people unpick that idea that thin is better does it really equal better and I think this is where dietitians can absolutely come in because you have that huge wealth of knowledge around this topic that thin is not necessarily not better. better and I would also I say to the dietitians listening that this is a really important opportunity for us to ask ourselves these same questions because even dietitians in the mm -hmm. health at every size space who have been working on confronting their biases and their yes. privileges and all of that we still hold on to a lot mm -hmm. of core beliefs that were instilled in us. And so I am not ashamed to say that I will still catch myself saying something in my head or reacting to something in mm -hmm. life that shows that I haven't fully gotten rid of that core belief yeah. that then is better. 100%. And that doesn't 100%. make us bad, bad no. practitioners, right? Um, it is very normal and it's really deeply entrenched. Mm -hmm. Like you said, Laura, it, it starts so young. And it it's really so does. pervasive mm -hmm. that um, the same work that we're doing with our clients is, of course, important for us to Absolutely. ask ourselves. And just as an example to that, saying that we experience this ourselves, this last week, I I've sort of haven't been into my office for 18 months and I pulled out a whole load of clothes last week because I had to go in for an event and they're clothes that I haven't worn in what, 20 months or something. Yeah. And there were a few dresses in there that did not fit. And I, I had this whole thing going through my head of like that thought and catching that thought and thinking, doesn't matter, clothes are meant to fit me. I'm not meant to fit my clothes. But it made me realize that even though I've done a lot of this work for years, it's still something that's, that's there in my brain. So I think that part of this, if you're uncovering in yourself or, or your clients, it is about, you, you know, sitting with it, seeing where it comes from and unpicking it, unpacking it and, you know, and moving, moving on from it as well. Yeah. And so you have the tools in your tool yes. chest to really say like, okay, I have this thought. I'm recognizing mm -hmm. where it's coming from. I know that I need to sit with it a little bit and unpack yeah. it. Um, are there any other strategies that you think are helpful if you notice it as a practitioner coming up mm. in you? So, I mean, I think the very first thing is to notice it, obviously, and then um, unpack it. And I think as practitioners, we know the research, so a lot of what I have to do is remind myself of all the research that I know that that suggests that actually thinner isn't better and all the research that shows you know um, health outcomes are not about size they're about healthy behaviors health promoting behaviors and reminding myself of all the work that I've done in the last couple of years on this um, and then I think the other thing I really find helpful um, maybe a little bit woo-woo to some, is having a positive affirmation. And one of the positive affirmations I say a lot, and I say this with my daughter as well, who's seven, and I think really starting to experience some of those, like navigating diet culture far too early. But one of the things we say a lot together is all bodies are worthy, regardless of their weight and size. So it's just having something that helps you 
almost like a mantra to go yeah. over and over and reconfirm what you already know absolutely sure. and I'm all about the woo I I like okay, welcome the woo, so we're <laughs> yeah. good with that and and I do believe in in affirmations mm. because it's not just like you know it sounds kind of silly and especially I'm a type a perfectionist dietitian dietitians are very like evidence-based I'm sure mm-hmm. psychologists that's are that's what I'm all about as well <laughs> yep um you want the cold hard facts and yeah. so things that don't make 100 percent sense sometimes we like write them off and at yeah. the same time there's something very powerful about like divesting yourself from that like mm-hmm. left side of your brain um and going more into the creative side a little bit um and tapping into something that is more intuition based. Mm. Um, and again, just like repeating it to yourself and keeping it yep. front of mind. So it's Absolutely. not like some, some magic bullet, but I do believe that it can be part yeah. of yeah. a lot of our healing and a lot Absolutely. of our, our work ourselves. Yeah. Um, so I appreciate that. And I, I will also say that if you're listening and you feel like you struggle with this sometimes, or you feel insecure because you're still working through some of your own stuff around food and body, then having support systems is really helpful Mm. too. Um, And having safe spaces, because I think a lot of times as dietitians in particular, I don't know how you feel about, you know, therapy or, or psychology or uh, coaching, but dietitians are kind of made to feel like they have to look apart. And they're not supposed to struggle with this. It's like yeah. the unspoken thing. So if you feel like you're out there finding a, a space where you can be vulnerable and say like, no, mm. hey, I feel like I'm struggling with this. That can be really important. Too. Yeah, I agree for sure. And the so, other, oh, sorry. Oh, I was, nope, <laughs> go ahead. I was going to say the other cool belief that comes up a lot, which I think, again, I think I feel like dietitians can play a really big part in help supporting a client through this process so the core belief is eating bad food makes me a bad person and a secondary one that comes with this is that if if I'm eating that bad food then I need to do it when no one is watching so this I think a lot of this comes from how your family and how you were growing up people talked about food so was it naughty to eat certain foods? So if you're a kid and you're hearing people talk about naughty food and being naughty, then you take that on as I'm a bad person when I eat this because I'm being naughty. And when you're a kid, you don't get that distinction between naughty and bad. You just think, well, it's it's a really naughty thing for me to do to eat this. And then again, this can be reinforced by diet culture. We look at all the marketing and the terminology around food. We've got guilty pleasures. We've got cheats and treats and halo top and guilt free. It's very moralistic, isn't it? So loaded so that then we grow up feeling guilty, ashamed, embarrassed when we're eating this quote unquote bad food. And then this is where I see some of that behavior. And it definitely was me when I was um, in my bulimic years, that guilt and that shame of the binge and then the purge for me. And that was all done in secret. So you're seeing a bit of behaviors like eating foods in secret. So people who sort of say on the, on the secret eater, and this is where I think dietitians can really help because you can really unpick that whole idea of, of food can be neutralized. Food is just food, like labeling, not labeling food as good or bad, healthy, unhealthy, 
and taking away the mor morals of eating. Yeah. So that's another core belief that comes up a yep. lot. And I do that work a lot. That's where we get into kind of the food police conversations yes. and making peace with food. If you're going to make peace with food, we have to first understand, well, what are you judging it for? Why, why don't you feel at peace around this food? Mm. Um, and that can come in a number of different directions. I have a client that I've worked with for years and they were once given a health scare by a doctor about their heart health, um, probably unfounded. And it just sparked in them this mm. fear of any food that had saturated fat in it, that had cholesterol in it. Um, yeah. And so we had to do a lot of unpacking of, you know, the actual, what does the science say? What mm -hmm. does rational thought say? Can we look at it on a spectrum as opposed to like binary good and bad? Um, mm. And and slowly but surely they were able to start incorporating some of these feared foods in. And that's where we see when we break down those core beliefs and really challenge mm -hmm. them, that's where you're able to find yeah. that food freedom. Yeah, agreed. And one of the things I always share with, with clients is that because core beliefs are learned, they can be unlearned. So just like you said, it's that unpicking of where it's come from. Is it actually true? And then helping support them through that process of you know, learning something new, a new belief. Absolutely. Um, and so we as dietitians are doing this work with clients. We're helping them with their core beliefs. We're working through our own diet culture, infused core beliefs as well. Mm -hmm. I'd also love to touch on core beliefs as they relate to dietitians outside of diet culture. Mm -hmm. So the core beliefs that we have about ourselves, our worth, our confidence, because mm -hmm. I talk a lot about imposter feelings on here. Yeah. We talk a lot about those narratives. And I'd love to hear your perspective on how core beliefs play into that. Yeah. So this is such a classic one. And I would say it's not just dietitians. I think we see this in so many different contexts. I definitely see this with some of my fellow uh, psychologists. So when I guess when you're when you're doing work, this kind of work where you're working with people on a daily basis, it can it can be easy to take things on and think immediately, oh, I'm not worthy. So I would always say, you know, you're not alone. <laughs> It's yes. absolutely something that other people hear. And actually, one of the things I've always loved as a psychologist looking at is some extremely um, seemingly confident, very successful people struggle with this kind of thing yes. at all. So I've even heard um, Will Smith, who I love, oh, talk yeah. about that fact that he, um, you know, his he he may appear as self-confident, but actually he battles with fear um, and other people like that. So we aren't alone. But I think, again, if you do feel, have those feelings of unworthiness, the imposter feelings, I love the fact that you call it imposter feelings and not syndrome, by the way. Yeah. I just want to say that because it's I not, totally not an illness. agree with you. It's yeah. so important that we are careful about the words that we say. And I think that First of all, it is really about uncovering it. So a very first step is noticing what we say to ourselves. So if you do come up against setbacks, something happens at work, you come up with a particular frustration, notice what it is you're saying to yourself. So if you're saying, if you've got this kind of all or nothing mindset, you know, things are never going to work, work out. I'm totally useless. I can't believe that this happened again. I'm never going to be able to build my practice. I'm never going to be confident. Those kinds of 
never going to also always those kinds of words are often an indication that there is a core belief coming up so noticing it first then the second thing is is really encouraging and exploring where this comes from so I think this can be quite emotional and it can be really tough so kind of little caveat there but going back to messages that you received from teachers or your parents did you often maybe give up when things got hard as a kid or maybe you had a parent that was very critical about your approach maybe if you made mistakes maybe if you were doing something really innocuous like pouring some milk in your cereal and you spilt it over the kitchen table like what what happened what did your parents say like did they freak out like oh, I can't believe you did that you know you get told off for doing that kind of thing or maybe when you were I don't know trying to be creative and doing some art and you were getting told off for the mess that you were making so those kinds of things can lead to quite negative beliefs about our core ability so it goes back to that real core um, and those childhood experiences Absolutely. But again, so a third that would say is that just knowing that those are learnt, and even though they were, may have been learnt a long time ago, depending on how old you are, but they can be unlearnt. So if you find that negative core belief coming up over and over, so the whole I'm, I'm not worthy, I'm not good at this, I would really encourage people, so going back to the slightly woo-woo element, is to find a more positive belief that you can put over that so it could be so one of the things I when I've worked with people around affirmations sometimes people find it really hard to suddenly flip to the complete positive like I'm amazing I can do yeah, this it like, feels I'm very wonderful. like fake and disingenuous it can feel start. quite fake so I always say find the thing that's positive that talks about the, maybe the process so I'm trying my best yeah, you can be trying your best or every day I'm working on bettering myself. That doesn't feel too extreme and mm -hmm. crazy, but it feels like, yeah, that's a process I can be doing today. I can be I working on bettering myself today. And then my, my fourth step is about repeating this daily. So I do really like affirmations. And if I'm working on something in particular, I'll have it on my... Um, um, you know on my laptop or on your mirror depends on what your partner my partner always thinks I'm a bit strange when I have I these things out <laughs> so I stick to like around my desk where I spend a lot of time so if you just have that little reminder sometimes I put a little reminder on my phone mm -hmm. so you have that reinforcement and the thing about our brains is anything that goes that happens over and over becomes reinforced so the more you can reinforce it the better so it's all about First, recognizing it, secondly, challenging it, and then finding something else that you can put there in yeah. place of what you're doing currently. Absolutely. And the recognition piece of it is so huge. I mm -hmm. usually do a good amount of my work there with dietitians. We look at things like, well, what did you learn about confidence or speaking up or being assertive or being perfect when you were a kid? Yeah. What did you hear about it in school? Because yeah. we absolutely have perfectionism reinforced mm -hmm. throughout our, our education system. The process of becoming a dietitian basically sets us up to feel like we have to be perfect, to feel like we're never good enough and to feel like mm. we're not inherently worthy. Yeah. Um, and so we have to recognize that we 
doubly learned this. It's not just what we learned in childhood. It's how the culture of our profession is set up. Yeah. And once you start to recognize that, you can start to separate yourself from those thoughts and say Mm -hmm. like, well, again, like you said, if this is something that I was taught, this isn't something that I have to believe. This isn't necessarily fact. Yeah, exactly. That's huge. And of course, doing it over and over again is the key. Um, (laughs) And I appreciate what you said that even confident people or seemingly confident people struggle with this because we all pretty much struggle with this at some point. I often come off as a pretty confident person and I have those thoughts all the time. Um, I think that confidence is less about feeling confident and more about taking action even when you don't or being able to navigate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We don't have to like feel like superheroes all the time in order to be a confident person. Yeah. And I think also sometimes it's worth remembering that a little bit of fear can be a good thing. I think Mm -hmm. people run away from fear, but I remember the first time I, because I lecture, I remember the first time I stood up to lecture, I was terrified, absolutely terrified. And then each time that helped me hone my skills to the point where I'm, you know, 16 years later, no longer terrified. But that little bit of fear can be very motivating if you use it in the right way. And again, sometimes it is about what you say to yourself, because if you're like, oh, my God, I'm freaking out. I'm so terrified. I'm going to screw this up. Then, yeah, you maybe screw it up. But if you're like, you know what, I'm feeling scared. Um, you know, I'm quite nervous, maybe using some different language, say I'm going to use that to motivate me and making sure you do some preparation, then, you know, you're going to be fine. Well, it's about not going down that rabbit hole of that belief. Like it's, it's the stories that we tell ourselves. So it's not necessarily the fear that's the problem. It's the story that we tell ourselves about. Exactly. And we go down that like deep, dark rabbit hole that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, so to speak. Um, So that's, that's huge. Now, you mentioned fear. Sometimes I feel like one of the things that, especially with intuitive eating dietitians, because it's, it's not something we're deeply trained in um, Mm. during school. Some of that fear that we have is like, well, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I cross that line and Mm. I go more into therapy? Like how am I supposed to know where that line is? And I think that can cause a lot of those imposter feelings, that fear, that like, insecurity when we're working with clients um can you speak to like that line and how Mm. dietitians can feel confident that they're staying within their scope and also helping their clients totally so this whole idea of staying within your scope of practices for any practitioner so i'm just going to say that i have exactly the same thing as a psychologist i need to stay within my scope of practice I would also say that there is a huge gray area in terms of what is that scope of practice. And, you know, so sometimes you may be having difficult conversations, but you end up bringing it back into your scope of practice. So that's fine. I think it's just about being very aware of the conversations you're having. Now, I personally am not trained in working with people with active eating disorders even though I work with a lot of people who have disordered eating and as you know as dietitians know that is a very blurry line when I think about my journey with disordered eating and eating disorders it would probably be quite hard to to say well that day you were disordered eating the next day it was an eating disorder so I think first it's about really recognizing that there is so much gray area 
I would say, obviously, if you're not trained specifically to work with people who are currently experiencing eating disorders, that would be an area to kind of, you know, stop and reach out to other people. But then also, I think some people who've had emotional, um, like childhood trauma specifically. So I think it's about picking up maybe some of the red flags. So if you're a dietitian that's not currently um, trained to work with people who have eating disorders, there are different things that you can pick up, pick up and they're around maybe some of the physical symptoms, some of the emotional symptoms that come up and some of the behaviors. So obviously physical symptoms, it can in some instances be easy to spot and in others harder. So and maybe harder if you're doing all Zoom calls. Um, but I would say people who have ra- rapid or significant um, weight loss, if they talk about maybe if they're feeling particularly dizzy, um, maybe some stomach issues, and obviously stomach issues can indicate so many other things. So you need to look at this all holistically. I would say maybe emotional stuff is, again, um, could be red flags but again when you listen to what I'm going to tell you this could just be disordered eating so if people have a preoccupation with food they've spent a lot of time extreme dieting very inflexible um, thinking very um, negative body image so negative um, thoughts obsessive thoughts as well but again that line between disordered eating and eating disorders is is really you know it's very blurry I know, it's, it's not cut and dry and that's that's it's the not. thing with scope is that there's not there are yeah. some black and white things yes yeah. yes but not many a exactly. lot of it is very contextual exactly. and, and it's based on how you talk about it too totally right? yeah so I mean behavioral ones are also things that could be disordered eating but if people are um, skipping meals missing out a uh, complete food groups excessive exercise also food rituals if people have very specific food rituals lots of fear foods um certain maybe specific times of day that they will eat i would say the big thing is if you suspect someone has an active eating disorder is approaching it with curiosity and asking them lots of questions around how they find eating the process of it and then if you do suspect definitely ask permission to refer I don't know what the setup is like in the US whether you know um how how that process happens but I know in yeah in the UK you would you would have referrals to see someone a bit more specialized yep Um, it would be pretty similar I do tell like I have one dietitian right now that I'm working with one-on-one and to be clear I'm not a an eating disorder specialized dietitian I don't have that background so I don't Mm. um necessarily supervise individuals or dietitians who are working in that population I do but they always have someone else to help with the really clinical stuff because I'm not gonna go there. Um, but I have one dietitian, she doesn't have a background in, uh, eating disorder work, but she works in a clinic where she doesn't have a say in who she works with. Oh, okay. And she got someone with uh, an acute eating disorder. And so if you find yourself in that situation where you cannot refer, then having supervision is really important. I am lucky that in my, among my clients, I have some that specialize in eating Mm. disorder. So they've helped her, come up with red flags of like, you can help her 
up to this point. Like yeah. if you start seeing these red flags, this is where you need to refer out. Yeah. Um, and she works cl- very closely with the clients um, or the patient's therapist as well. Mm. Um, so all of those things combined have allowed her to see her, this client within her scope. Yeah. Um, but but if, with that supervision. Yeah, yeah, with a lot of oversight. And yeah. we're very clear on like where my supervision expertise ends mm. um, and we're monitoring it to see if she needs something else, something yeah. more. Yeah. So you can do it. Mm-hmm. Most of the time though, um, if you can refer out, it is really helpful to network with other dietitians yeah. and know who's outside of your specialty, right? Like I have a dietitian who uh, is specialized in heart health and diabetes. Mm. That is not my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. So I am going to refer to her when I get someone who comes in with those issues where that's what they really need help with. Um, I don't specialize in kidney disease. That is another big specialty. I don't enjoy it. I'm not great at it. I have so much respect for all of the dietitians that deal with all of that. Um, that's not me. So I'm going to refer out. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I'm assuming that you have the same thing that yeah. therapists, yeah. psychologists, um, coaches, we all have little specialties where yeah. we thrive and ones where we don't. And knowing who in your circle thrives okay. in those populations, you want to yeah. lift them up. Yeah, totally agree. Because I think that uh, that whole net- networking piece is absolutely right. So know who you could refer because it's when you're speaking with a client and you're like, you know, I'd love to help you, but I can't because of X, Y, Z. And here are three people that you can speak yeah. to that I think might help you. That is so much more encouraging and comforting for the client. Um, and I think the other place to, to watch out for red flags is where you're suspecting childhood trauma. So adults that are living with um, childhood trauma, because I think the problem with those kinds of clients is you can uh, re-traumatize people and you absolutely don't want to be doing that. So childhood trauma that's in adults can impact relationships that they have. And that's often due to the feelings of shame and guilt, depending on what um, they experience. And I would say things to look out for, red flags. And again, obviously this can relate to other things, but again thinking about the person holistically um extreme anger so especially when it rears its head without warning so you say something and that triggers an emotional outburst that seems totally out of line with what you have said so that's a real red flag the other extreme is total unresponsiveness so if you're speaking to someone and they kind of almost like switch off that's another red flag um, anxiety can be one, but obviously anxiety can be other things as well. But yeah. someone who's overly anxious about stuff, always worrying, second guessing, questioning, um, anxious about everything. Um, depression as well, but obviously depression could be <laughs> related to other things. But if you're suspecting like real depressive um, tendencies, huge. yeah. yeah. Um, and panic attacks as well. So people who experience panic attacks and obviously you might witness a panic attack or if they talk frequently about panic attacks they're having as well. But obviously that can be indica- indicative of other things like anxiety disorders. Um, but I would say that list of symptoms are ones definitely to be aware of if so, if you're 
speaking to a client who is talking about these or experiencing those while you're having that conversation, that's definitely um, a red flag. And I would I would definitely be speaking to other therapists about and people who, of course, specialize with emotional childhood trauma. And again, it's not me at all. But I do know people who I would refer people onwards to in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. And I I appreciate that. It sounds like what you're saying is um, that there are limiting factors that you hit up against. So um, the way I usually think about it is if something is getting in the way of me doing my job, Mm -hmm. that means that we need to address that thing first. So if someone is struggling with significant depression or living with significant Mm -hmm. severe depression, then it's likely that they're going to have a really hard time doing the work on food and body because Mm -hmm. that's not the root issue. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when we come up against that, we need to encourage them to find support for the depression so that they can make space to do the work around food and body. Um, I had a, uh, one very early on my first interaction with this was I had a client who, uh, came to me with a history of uh, quote unquote, binge eating was in like overeaters anonymous. Um, and we were doing a lot of work on Mm. breaking free of some of these rules and many sessions in, it came up that there was a history of, um, sexual assault Mm. and that's where this came from. And as soon as that happened, yeah, that was the red flag for me of this is not about the food. This is not something that I'm going to help this person heal from. And it's not within my scope to go down that road, Mm -hmm. even though it's very much tied to her relationship Mm -hmm. with food and body. That's not what I'm going to be able to help. And I can do a lot of damage. So that's where you have the conversation of this is something that a mental health professional is going to be best suited for. And you can always come back to this work when you feel like you're ready to, but that's not going to be here. Um, So to really- And you're so right about- about the root cause element because the chances are the binge eating that's not the point it yeah. comes from yeah something something else and yeah. you can help them peripherally as a dietitian mm-hmm. you know if it relates to their food choices mm-hmm. and if it relates to their body image to some extent you can touch on it that's yeah. fine but as soon as the conversations start to veer off and you recognize that it's really coming back to this other thing yeah, that's, that's what you're talking about of these red flags yes, that are saying exactly. you either need to be working concurrently with a different mm-hmm. professional yeah. or you need to pause the work on nutrition, yeah. go dig into this and work on that and then come back to your work with nutrition when yeah. you feel like you're able to. Yeah, exactly. That's huge. Um, And so as we wrap up today, are there any last thoughts that you have to dietitians, whether it's um, helping them feel more confident with themselves, helping them feel more confident in their work with individuals in this intuitive eating space? I think the big thing I always say, I always come back to this whole idea that core beliefs and core beliefs are learned so they can be unlearned. And you can shift your mindset because I think sometimes people have an idea that because they have a certain mindset about something, it's never going to change, but actually it so can change. So if you have, if you're thinking in a certain way at the moment, it doesn't mean you're always going to be thinking like that. It's about doing the work. That's amazing. Well, I so appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective and your experience in these areas. Um, 
tell us a little bit about what you've got going on, how people can like connect with you after this, all the good stuff. Yeah, well, it would be obviously lovely to connect with any dietitian. So I think one of the best places to find me is on Instagram. I am Dr. Lara Zib on Instagram. And I'm also over on YouTube as the same handle. So Dr. Lara Zib on YouTube. So yeah, come and find me and say hello. Fantastic. I'll be sure to include both of those in the show notes in case you didn't quite catch them. Uh, but thank you, Lara. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Empowering Dietitians podcast. If you enjoy these episodes, it would mean the world to me if you could share it with your dietitian friends. And if you listen on Apple Music, leave a rating and review. This helps the podcast reach more dietitians so that we can really create a collective of dietitians who feel confident and connected both to their work and each other. You are not alone. And as always, if you're looking for that extra level of support, check out my Empowering Dietitians Supervision Services at www.empoweringdietitians.com slash individual dash supervision. That's www.empoweringdietitians.com slash individual dash supervision.